Exploring the Technologies of Liberty. This is a Guy's Take episode. Welcome to the crypto economy with Guy Swan. That is me, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this is the show where we explore and read about all of the aspects of the cryptographic economy, its technology, and the revolutionary change that it is bringing into an unsuspecting world. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Today's show is actually a follow-up uh, to Alex Svetsky's awesome piece, The Bitcoin Times, which we just covered in two parts uh, and uh, honestly, it just deserved its own episode, and I wanted to do it justice. Uh, this piece touches on so many different elements and uh, really awesome analogies in a single work that uh, I hope I don't go off on some multi-hour tangent here and get lost, because uh, we've literally done whole episodes on almost every aspect of uh, what this one piece covers um, I mean, I mean, there's so much. This piece is so dense. It's the pointlessness and the the, the real technology that made blockchain valuable. What blockchain really is? Uh, Bitcoin. How Bitcoin can't be copied. Um, Bitcoin as a new internet, as uh, an alternative monetary network, uh, immutability as a service, um, the coming financial inversion. Dumb versus smart networks, the incredible potential of lightning, the societal stack, the nature of money. I mean, all of this is is so densely packed into this one piece, uh, and each one of them deserves a week of episodes on its own. So uh, I'm going to try in the show notes to go through and maybe pick an episode around sort of each of these topics so that if you want to dive deeper down the rabbit hole on any one of these topics, uh, you can easily do so. Uh, giving myself a fun homework assignment there, uh, searching through 377 episodes now is slowly becoming a real pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> so we start here with blockchain is dead. And the, the whole blockchain fuss, the idea that blockchain was the underlying technology has been pushed so hard and it truly makes no sense um like i can't the only way to explain blockchain like what blockchain is is literally just a a chronological set of hashes that is it that is what makes a blockchain a blockchain hashes are not new technology we have been able to prove the integrity of data for a very long time using um, multiple variants of cryptographic hashes. But you know what didn't spring up around that? Multi-trillion dollar uh, systems, like multi-trillion dollar markets were not around just the simple provenance of data from the past to the future. And there is an, it's, it's not a massive problem. It just isn't. That is all a blockchain does. It groups, um, it groups information together hashes it, and then chains it into the next set of information so that you have a chronological history of the actual data. But it has got nothing to do with immutability. 
Like that on its face does not do anything. It's something that we've been able to do for a very, very long time. And blockchain by itself is meaningless in the context of what Bitcoin accomplishes. Blockchain is really literally just the data structure that all of the other incredible potential and aspects of the Bitcoin system use to reference. That's it. It's just a type of database. And alone, it is nothing. It's not immutable. Like, like if I publish, if I put all of my stuff in a blockchain on my computer and then just make an API so that it's publicly accessible, just host it out in the world so that people can connect to me and query data from it, it does not make it any more immutable than any other, than if I had just run an SQL server or I'd just run an Excel spreadsheet or a Google Doc, a shared Google Doc. It does not change anything about the nature of the data on my computer. I can very easily make a completely different blockchain that has a completely different set of information and transactions, completely different set of uh, a protocol to determine what the information is. I can make thousands of different versions on my own computer, and you have no idea which is which. There is so much more to this system than just the blockchain. That is the a really, really great analogy was the, the egg and the cake. Like, like it is one piece. It is that, that is simply the data structure for the, the game theory mechanism for the distributed, the proof of work and um, Byzantine fault tolerant um, network, the, uh, the means of distributing that network to, of distributing the ledger itself all the way across the globe, the economic incentives and disincentives built within that system that is a, that are also a derivative of the proof of work, um, and the fact that there is a incentive that is a there is a power dynamic between those producing the proof of work and the market, which is validating whether or not it's it's proof of work according to the real Bitcoin rules versus uh, alternative rules, a, a completely different monetary setup. Uh, in fact, I'm probably going to do. I meant to tweet this out, but um, there's actually a good analogy um, that I was thinking about last night on the like what the level of validation you were doing in Bitcoin, and then the analogous validation that you would be doing on like a gold coin. Because I actually think there are really good um, analogous processes. Um, and that some of the specific means of validating or confirming um, certain elements about your Bitcoin transaction uh, actually correlate really well with um, the way we would actually validate a gold coin. Um, where is this thing? I, I wrote it down somewhere around here. Okay, okay, yeah. So, um, like, let's say you've got a gold coin, right? So if you confirm the face of that coin, you confirm it's a genuine stamp of some, of some trusted institution or a bank or a government, whatever it is, and you, you uh, validate that stamp, that's largely the same or analogous to confirming that your Bitcoin transaction is in a block with a valid proof of work. But you're not confirming anything else. You're not confirming that the coin is gold, and you're not confirming that in underneath that stamp that it's a consistent metal. None of that. You're just confirming... Same as in Bitcoin, you're just confirming that there is a valid stamp on the actual coin. So now if we confirm with that gold coin that the material is consistent through to the center of that coin, 
of just that coin, well, that is the same as validating the entire history of your Bitcoins, your Bitcoin balance, whatever it is, back to the block that it was issued in and proving that there was a chain of transactions all the way back to a block with still valid proof of work all the way down the chain and to a valid Coinbase um, uh, in which that Bitcoin was actually produced. It was issued into circulation. And then there is the final check on the gold coin is that uh, validating or confirming that it is pure gold element, that it is the atomic element gold through and through. It's not an imitation. It's not an alloy, which you haven't done in those others. Just because the material is consistent doesn't mean the material is gold. Just because the stamp is genuine doesn't mean it's consistent all the way through or that it's gold. Gold, the element, has a very explicit uh, set of atomic rules that make it gold versus mercury. And in that determines which monetary policy that coin exists within. Silver is a different monetary policy than gold. Um, a rhodium is a different monetary policy than gold. They have different stock-to-flow ratios. They have different uh, value densities, etc., etc. So to confirm with a spectrometer or whatever that your money, that that gold coin is pure gold through to the center with a genuine stamp on it, the only equivalent in Bitcoin is validating the full history of every other Bitcoin back to every single Coinbase, ensuring that that entire system has adhered perfectly to the exact same rules as your Bitcoin balance. That is the only way to prove all of it. If you are not validating at all three levels, you are trusting a third party somewhere to tell you what Bitcoin is. If you're not checking the entire history of the entire Bitcoin network, then you do not know what the monetary policy is. The great thing about gold in the, in the sense of it not being a, uh, a validation network, which we'll go into in just a little while about how Bitcoin is the first money that is also the network itself, um, that we've combined money and the network into a single thing. So that's why, that's why you actually have to check the entire network and the balances and histories of all of the Bitcoins because its policy is only, the only way to confirm that it is the element Bitcoin is by checking that all of the Bitcoin within the system is the same element, is the same set of rules. Otherwise, uh, you know, you don't know, uh, yeah, you, maybe your rules, maybe the tokens of your Bitcoin um, uh, adhere to the explicit Bitcoin protocol. But if somebody else is out there just printing a million tokens under their own set of rules and it's getting mixed in with what you were trying to, your economy or your compatibility because you're not checking that, well, then you have no idea what the actual monetary policy of the tokens that you are using is. Um, you don't know what the stock-to-flow ratio of your balance is if you don't confirm everyone else's balance. Uh, whereas gold is the universe actually protects that stock-to-flow ratio, but it does so in a unreliable manner. You don't really know how much we could just stumble upon, you know, a billion, very unlikely, but we could stumble upon a massive amount of gold somewhere. We can find some cheaper way to um, create gold out of a different element, um, irradiating mercury or whatever, and lead is always the example I use. But the blockchain is just one part 
of the entire set of tools here. And there is so much more about networks and money and game theory and the incentive structure that creates the actual value here. It is not the blockchain. Again, I can make a blockchain on my computer right now with the exact same rules of Bitcoin right this moment. And that does not make it decentralized, immutable, or secure in any way. These things are acquired as an incredibly long and difficult maturation process. It is a growth period that causes those things. It doesn't just happen because you have the recipe or because you have one of the tools of the recipe. The analogy I used in Bitcoin Can't Be Copied, uh, the episode uh, from the Gradually Then Suddenly series by Parker Lewis. Okay, I'll, I'll make that one. That will be definitely be one of the good ones to do a deeper dive on this topic. But the analogy I used is that just because you've copied the, the genetic code of the network or the organism, is, as the analogy goes, does not mean that you have a full-grown human that can accomplish a task. Like, you can have the DNA for a human. You can have an embryo uh, or a child, a baby, like, growing in the womb. But it is not until they have grown for 10 years and they have become strong and they have survived the early tests of their environment that they actually become a human strong enough to accomplish whatever task it is that you were trying to accomplish. So somebody who is starting a network from scratch is basically putting an embryo into a volatile, dangerous environment in which it doesn't get the benefit that Bitcoin had of basically hiding in plain sight for five years. It's going to be noticed immediately, which is another thing that he alludes to in this piece. Um, and, and then claiming that uh, if you just use this, it will be, you know, a full-grown human who can cut down trees and build you a house. It's like, well, no, you've got an embryo in the womb still. You have to prove yourself for 10, 15 years to actually accomplish that function. And that's why, that's why you, can't just, you can't just copy and paste this thing and think that you have the same thing. It's a, it's a failure to understand networks and that decentralization is a process. It is a, an emergent process property that takes time and same with its development as money as a unit of account it's going to take a very long time for it to prove its trustworthiness and its value is in the fact that it continues to survive and defend itself against things that attempt to compromise its decentralized uh and and like the nature of the commons the fact that no one owns this thing that no one can change it without broad, almost nearly perfect consensus. Um, and that's what that's what's pissed so many people off about this. That's that's where the big blocker frustration and anger came from is that they could not achieve consensus. They could not make it so that like nobody is being forced to run any software here. Everybody chooses the client that they install and the multiple Bitcoin the bigger block um, implementations and clients we're simply never able to convince the entire market to install different software. That is why there was a fork, and that is the only reason there was a fork. If they had had broad market support, if they had had full consensus, if all the businesses, exchanges, and users had all switched over to some other system, well, then it would have just happened. But they can't control 
what other people run on their computers because this is an open source, voluntary, open system. And people valued the validation over the payments. They began to see and understand what the real value of this technology was. And part of that is in social, like being socially secure, being technically secure, being mature and having defended against attacks to change it, being natively digital, the fact that it is globally distributed, that it is easy to validate by anyone who enters and begins using the system. I mean, think about just the nature of having a one terabyte, two terabyte, three terabyte blockchain, which is takes no time at all. That's what Ethereum basically has right now. It's I think it's approaching two terabytes, but I'm not mistaken for the actual full history of the chain. That a new entrant, how long does it take them to come in and actually sync a node and prove that they're using Ethereum? Because otherwise, they're just coming in and trusting that Infura has the real Ethereum on their servers, which is basically what everybody on that network is doing now. They're just trusting Infura to tell them this is Ethereum instead of this other thing. Um, and I don't, I don't know of any fully validating, fully archival nodes to speak of. There's, there's literally less than a handful. It's like two, three, I think, on the entire network. Um, which means everybody is either trusting the stamp or... Um, no, that's, that's pretty much it. They're trusting the stamp on the coin. Nobody's really checking the entire set of protocol rules or the full supply of the entire network, um, the consistency of those rules back to the beginning, which is a huge WTF anyway, because they've fundamentally altered the rules multiple times, multiple hard forks. It's like, okay, let's make sure we subjectively add in the fact that we, you know, revoked all the DAO disaster and all that good stuff. Um, so th that's another thing that like, if you're offering immutability as a service, hard forking is the stupidest thing you could do because hard forking is the exact opposite of immutability. It says, by the way, the, this immutability that you're getting is totally arbitrary because we can just change the rules. We're going to change the rules every six months. The simple truth is that there is no way to suggest to, to reliably say that that is censorship resistant that that can uh, prevent being shut down, that that is immutable in any way if you can just, if there's a small group of people that can just edit the rules within the system. This te entire technology is an artificial digital environment based upon those rules. And it only exists because all of the market participants are enforcing that validation as widely distributed as possible. Otherwise, there's no reason for the miners to adhere to the rules. So if the market isn't checking, well, then they don't have to be concerned with the market evicting them if they altered the rules. And again, the fewer people you have validating, it's just like not validating gold bars. If only the, the Federal Reserve actually checked what was inside the gold bars, and everyone is trying to use gold bars and gold coins for commerce, well, then everyone is simply trusting the Fed to tell them what gold is and what is not. The real innovation of this is autonomous consensus. It's about having an incredible, a socially scalable, and socially scalable is a uh, social scalability. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Money blockchains, social scalability by Nick Zabo. That's another one to go back to, um, to dive deeper into the, the specific topic about this. Social scalability is the ability for 
trust within the system to be as scalable as possible. And that means validation. That is the only thing that makes it trustworthy. The widespread validation, the cost of editing the, uh, the actual ledger, which is a derivative. The only reason there is a cost is because the validation rules require there be a cost. Again, this is, a, this is an artificial digital environment. Without the rules, there's no reason to, there's no requirement of the cost. You have to set up the incentives within what is and isn't valid. So the short version of that story is there's zero reason whatsoever to use a blockchain if somebody else is managing it. Like the idea that there is any value whatsoever in these ICO tokens that someone has just literally invented, they've just typed it into a smart contract that says, here's a billion tokens and I'm going to sell them to people, that there's no fiduciary responsibility behind it that it's not ownership in anything and that somehow this is going to have this is go, this is going to have more value than if i just created an excel spreadsheet and then sold entry points on that spreadsheet is is ridiculous that that's the level of absurdity of the whole ico boom nobody did anything those tokens mean nothing and if they are a stock, if they are some sort of dividend payout mechanism and uh, some have fiduciary responsibility, there's no reason to put it on a blockchain. It's a centrally defined thing. If there's fiduciary responsibility, well, then you're entirely reliant on the company that is redeeming it for the thing in the physical world. It's like trying to decentralize target gift cards. You still have to, you're, everybody still can only redeem them at Target. They're not, they're not valued still. If Target goes down, you can't decentralize something that only is worth anything if you can go to Target. If there wasn't a hundred billion dollar industry for hashing stuff and keeping it on a public server, then there's just not a public, there's, there's not a hundred billion dollar need for a blockchain outside of what Bitcoin enables outside of the system and decentralization that makes that blockchain a completely have a completely unique set of characteristics that simple hashing of data does not provide. But that's where he goes into the overkill section about how trying to use a blockchain for everything is incredible overkill for the cost and incentive that is going on, uh, that is going into the proof of work and the consensus mechanism of Bitcoin that requires the entire history to prove that it's a Bitcoin versus something else. The level of security and immutability that you are getting within the Bitcoin system is insane amounts of overkill and not even not desirable in a lot of different situations. You do not always want immutability. Not all information is that important. Like my Twitter account, I don't want immutability on my Twitter account. Like I'll keep my own history if I want to be able to prove that I had some set of tweets or something at some point in history. And if I really need that, well, I can just hash my own tweets into a Merkle tree and publish it every, publish one hash in one transaction once a week or something on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain. I don't need... 
thousands of computers to store my history. And in fact, I don't, I don't want immutability at all. If I say something stupid, I want to delete it or go back and edit it. I don't need that on my social media profile. And that's not a huge issue. If it was, we'd already be hashing and proving. Like we, People don't even prove the signatures and the hashes on the damn software they download. It's so hard to get people to do that. Why would they then pay for that service on a blockchain that isn't even secure? That doesn't have, that, that is, that's so bloated that nobody's validating it. What the hell did you get out of that? That is why the best use, the most powerful use case for Bitcoin is as a monetary base because there is no information as valuable as money. The systems that secure the integrity of money, the integrity of value, are a prerequisite to actually cooperating and trading value with other people of any economic sort whatsoever. The cost of the failure of money is the end of society. It is literally a foundational piece of how we cooperate economically as human beings. And the economy is the means to all of our ends. Everything we do exists within the economy and the exchange of other people. Uh, a good one on this is iPencil. The, there is literally almost an infinite amount of complexity and uh, hierarchy of people who cooperate and the amount of economic activity that is tied to the simple act of creating one pencil. And it is so complex and so intricate that no one, there is no single person in the world who can create a number two pencil in its totality by themselves. It's a fascinating piece by uh, Leonard Reed, if you have not listened or read it in the past. And it's also really short. Um, and if I remember correctly, it's like 150 episodes ago, I think. Um, but uh, I had a really fun discussion um, with that one just because that's such a fascinating concept um, and exposes some of the incredible complexity of our economic systems um, that is so often just completely taken for granted and uh, just wa whitewashed with our biases that just s stupidly simplifies it um, and, and kills all the nuance and brilliance of the economic cooperation that makes society possible. And there's a, there's a really um, interesting uh, part that he says, um, this is actually a quote from it, that much like language and the internet, simple rules, or in other words, protocols, create a solid foundation. And that enables you, it gives you the opportunity to build infinite complexity on top of it. And this is true of so many of our systems that there are just a couple of simple rules through that can be extended to an insane amount of complexity. That is what TCP IP is. Um, just a couple of simple rules that then build a new layer on top to create the infrastructure and the building blocks of the communications that make the internet. Uh, and then you build a, a, uh, a new set of code and interface on top of that. Like, you keep stacking these things. It's like, like life exists on this exact same, under this exact same rule. Everything that we think of as a living organism is all made out of four proteins. G, T, C, and A. 
DNA is nothing but four building blocks. And it is specifically because it is only those four tightly secured protein bonds that the unbelievable, nearly infinite complexity of life can actually exist. Whew, I'm getting, I'm getting worked up. Um, this is, uh, <laughs> uh, and this is true of networks all the time. Like we see this naturally evolve in so many different areas of the, uh, a really good word that he uses in this, an anthroposphere. Um, this is a really fascinating word. Um, but just in life and natural systems in general, really. I need to cool off for a second. Um, let's, uh, let's take a break really fast. I'm going to go get something to drink and we will jump back in. Some of this stuff is really hard to convey. Um, and I have a hard time sometimes skipping over a lot of the foundational pieces. But one thing that he hits on that I think is so important to address is that the security is a function of cost. And in a very basic sense, Bitcoin is the most costly chain to edit because of the vast global distribution of validators that need to be convinced in order to make any rule changes. That is an enormous cost. And uh, both in time, in communication, in organization, in consensus, all of those things. Uh, and that's just in the validation network, what makes one piece of information valid versus not in the network. And then the incredible cost in the proof of work to go back in time within that set of validation rules. Proof of work only matters within the validation rules. So, um, but it is explicitly because proof of work is so unbelievably costly and that, so there's an incentive and a disincentive, right? There's a reward both in fees and in the issuance of new coins that are pushing that cost to add to the barrier and extend into the future. There's a reward, there's a carrot being hung out to everybody who um, can pay this enormous cost for, to move us forward. And then there is, at the same time, an enormous cost, a disincentive, a, a, a destruction of the reward and a cost without a reward for going backwards in time. That is what creates the immutability. It is the validation rules which create an environment which present a reward moving forward and a massive cost going backward. There's a quote um, related to this um, that I highlighted here in the piece um, under the blockchain's broken promise section, but that Bitcoin is the most secure public digital network we have, not because it's, quote, built on a blockchain, but because it combines that form of database architecture, which is what it is, with a robust game theoretically sound economic model with a well thought out incentive and disincentive mechanism and proof of work which solves the byzantine general's problem in a distributed or decentralized system and introduces the game theory so the game theory is created because of as a consequence of the incentive and disincentive mechanism and the incentive and disincentive mechanism is a consequence of the cost embedded in the system by proof of work, 
And the proof of work is a requirement of the system because it's required within the set of validation rules. And the validation rules are enforced because the entire market doesn't accept anything that isn't within the set of rules. They are running full nodes or as many people in as many jurisdictions as widely as possible distributed across the globe are enforcing those rules so that no one can change them and the proof of work is still a requirement. The monetary policy is still a requirement. The signatures are still a requirement. All of these things will not be, if any of these things are edited or altered in any way, they will be rejected flat out, no questions asked by every participant who is running a full node, and then subsequently by every uh, client or um, uh, individual computer that is then connecting to that network of full nodes um, and querying them for data. They will not see any of the invalid data because it will not be accepted into the network, and that goes back up the tree. That requires the all of these rules to be adhered to. It requires the proof of work to meet a certain strict set of standards, which creates the incentives and disincentives, which then leads to the economic game theory that this thing is immutable. That leads us to another element of immutability, resistant to change. Hard forks are the opposite of immutability. Every day that Bitcoin remains unchanged, or that remains within the current set of consensus rules, you, you can't sell immutability on something on software that can be altered in any way possible, particularly when we're talking about distributed consensus software. The, the networks are fundamentally different. This is not just another website. This is not another payment app. Its Lindy effect is only meaningful within the consensus rules within the actual validation of the system. So like the Lindy effect uh, is the, the idea that something that has um, survived for a certain amount of time uh, with the same conditions that it has not been altered, that it is, it is the same thing and it continues to live, uh, will continue to live. The longer it's alive, the more likely we think it's going to continue to survive. Um, just like the internet. Now that the internet's been around for 20, 30 years, um, Basically, nobody thinks it's going away tomorrow. It has the Lindy effect that it's going to at least last another 20 or 30 years. And in fact, it's gained such a powerful Lindy effect and has gained uh, such a powerful growth rate from its network effect. And the fact that the larger it grows as a network, the more valuable it is as a network. That's, that's what the network effect is. I mean, I know probably everybody is familiar with that. But it's basically, you know, uh, a, a network can have, uh, this is a very similar concept to the whole maturation process, process that I talked about earlier, is that the more people own the network, the more valuable that network is, despite the fact that the fundamentals, the, the actual elements or building blocks of that network might be the exact same. Like I could copy and paste Facebook right now, all the code, all the... Um, features and likes and posts and all that great stuff everything could be exactly the same but if there are no users on it it's worthless that it is valuable because of its network effect um and the stronger that network gets the harder it is to break out of that i mean look at the staying power of facebook it's incredibly difficult to break because facebook is that one platform where you can basically get to all of your friends and bitcoin has that effect when we're talking about the immutability system. And uh, somebody, somebody was arguing, I was talking with somebody on Twitter recently talking about how, well, it's about the degree of immutability and decentralization that you want. 
and 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 that's I, I think that's completely misunderstanding again the nature of networks and that um uh, particularly in monetary networks it's got an even stronger tendency to converge on one so to say that we're going to what's a good analogy for that um like okay so so the internet uh, let's go back to the internet analogy the internet is designed to connect people right and so you can connect to a million people or you can connect to a hundred people or you can connect to one person but you're going to do all of that on the internet to say that people are going to use network or currency b for a small amount of decentralization or small amount of settlement assurances or a varying degree of immutability is like saying that we're going to use this alternative internet we're going to use we're going to use altnet uh, with a different router and a different ISP when we want to connect to just 50 or 100 people, but then we'll just, we'll go to the internet when we want to connect to a million people. When the truth is, no, we will connect to 100 people or five people or who, however many small number of people or larger number of people on the internet. Um, and it, it will converge on one. It will be a single unifying standard. And the thing is, is you can get degrees of trade-offs. You can get proof of stake you can put a proof of stake sidechain on bitcoin if you want lower amounts of immutability or you want some lesser degree of decentralization or a consortium of companies to protect you versus um uh versus wanting you know the most robust decentralized immutable network ever because again it's overkill for a vast amount of services the one job that is important enough to put on that system is money because it is literally the fabric of society so if we don't want if it's not about money it's just about tweets or something and maybe i do want a hash of my tweets for some damn reason well, then put it on a side chain, hash it, and then just put it in a transaction once once a month. And then I've got a history that I can always prove, even down to an individual uh, tweet. That's how a um, that's how a Merkle tree works. That you can keep just a uh, small uh, tree of hashes, um, and you can always prove that your tweet, even if you don't have all of the rest of the data involved, uh, as long as you have your tweet and the hash. Um, relevant to the root, you can always prove that it was there. So I don't need to be able to recall the entire, uh, you know, thousand tweets or whatever I did for the last five months to prove against the one hash in the blockchain. All I need is the short tree to get to my one tweet. And all of that is possible. The high degrees of immutability, the trade-offs with immutability, the maybe consortium federated sidechain degree of immutability, the entire range is possible on Bitcoin. And it makes no sense to try to create an an, a totally separate and independent infrastructure and network to get a slightly less or to get a much less degree of immutability when you can make those trade-offs anchored to the most immutable blockchain that exists. And it we're talking about a system that is going to consume a massive amount of proof of work. It makes no sense to do it more than once. He talks about it. The there is a vast, huge cost to running the Bitcoin blockchain and keeping the system alive. Proof of work is an incredibly costly endeavor, but it is because the value gained from it is higher than the cost going into it. 
the ability to secure our money from central control and manipulation to basically neuter the disproportionate power from certain financial institutions and government and political institutions that do not have the power to manipulate balances, that do not have the power to adjust, to arbitrarily or politically adjust monetary policy within the Bitcoin system, that is the only thing that requires that amount of immutability and that level of distributing trust. And any lesser amount of trust that we want can be anchored to that. I honest, I honest to God spent an enormous amount of time trying to justify and come up with a good reason for altcoins to exist. For, um, and, and the only decent one that I can really pull out is that um, maybe there will be, because cryptography is never a full assurance game, that there is always a degree of, if you give it enough time, this cryptographic system might be broken, this curve might be found insecure, because these things are secure because of the amount of time they have survived attack. That is how a cryptographic system or an algorithm basically um, is proven secure. Um, it's not because, oh, we can just check the math really quick and then we know we're good to go. Um, you have to beat it to death for years, and that's really the test. But that's kind of my version of what Alex goes into um, about... Why, why I think it's Bitcoin, and really Bitcoin alone, that's going to soak up trillions and trillions of dollars worth of value and um, monetary exchange in the digital economy, in the, in the new crypto economy. And anything that wants a lesser degree of immutability or wants to trade the, the cost of that immutability for, um, uh, of that immutability and distributed validation for a slightly less validated or a much cheaper payment for smaller value payments or something can anchor to it can branch off of it like a tree if you've got a if you've got a huge strong trunk you can make an ex a huge beautiful explosive tree of all sorts of branches and leaves and, and an entire environment in the canopy of this tree you can build an infinite amount of stuff on top of this if you've got a strong, solid, not going anywhere, Lindy effect, the rules have never been changed, any computer in the world can validate it, even your mobile phone, as a foundation, as a simple foundation with a couple of critical, secure building blocks, you can maintain an extraordinary amount of complexity on top of that. Um, just again... Just like the analogy to the proteins that make up DNA. Four building blocks, what are the limits? I mean, is anybody going to argue that we need more proteins because DNA doesn't do enough? Okay, that's enough about foundations. Um, uh, this leads us into part two of BOS, the Bitcoin operating system. Um, and the difference between... And we've kind of touched on this, really, and but I love this section in particular. This is a monetary network, not a payments technology. Um, and uh, there's a uh, quote. Well, well, first, right at the beginning, he, he 
launches us off with this is the first time we've combined money as a unit with money as a network um, into a single thing. And that's that's such a powerfully misunderstood aspect of the system to to mistake this as a payments technology. Uh, like like he says, your your laptop, quote, your laptop has the ability to process hundreds of thousands of transactions a minute. That process is trivial. Payments is trivial. So that aspect of it is not at all what's important or powerful in the Bitcoin system. It is the widespread distributed authentication of the digital information that is incredibly hard, that is very costly, and requires an explicitly low set of barriers for it to be widespread. Again, which is all of those things that lead, like we talked about before, um, that's the foundation of all of those things that actually make it immutable in the long run. Again, the validation rules, proof of work, disincentive, incentive, game theory, etc. But unfortunately, money and networks are two things that are fighting for the position of that which people are most ignorant about. <laughs> um, uh, he has a, and he goes into like nobody, nobody knows what money is, and. Unfortunately, there is no shortcut to understanding it. It is a incredibly nuanced, fascinating journey, um, but it is it is very complex, and it is not something that you pick up in a couple of tweets. That's one of the issues: is that the the kind of dumb versions of all of these things are really easy to pick up. The oversimplified misunderstandings are really easy to grasp. But all of the nuances and true nature, the complexity of some of these networks, the really the degree of decentralization that exists in Bitcoin is so hard to imagine and wrap your head around. Um, there's, there's so many different facets and checks and balances involved uh, that it's, it's just easy to think of it as, oh, the developers run it oh, the, the miners run it, or, oh, the Federal Reserve can just control the market, or this the, the one whale caused the whole hype cycle. I mean, those, those statements, those beliefs are really absurd, but there's nothing simple about seeing why they are absurd. But I think, I think the internet to Bitcoin analogy is another thing that applies really well here. Um, because, and I'm really glad that whole section of this, um, is really, really good because he harps on a lot of the quotes about how Bitcoin is, I mean, excuse me, Bitcoin, ha, huh, um, how the internet is slow and clunky and can't do any phone calls, uh, or can't do as many phone calls as the phone network and that it's totally missing the point and that is their I don't know of a single analogy that can illustrate the idea of thinking Bitcoin can only do so many payments um, uh, and that it's slow and costly than the fact that the internet was basically worse at everything that the internet did early on than the alternatives. Um, but it, that was not what the internet did. It wasn't just that the internet was going to eventually be able to handle an infinite number of phone calls or a vastly more 
a greater number of phone calls than the phone network, but that is not what it did at its beginning. What the internet changed was the very fabric of how we communicated. It wasn't that they used the phone networks and put smarter phone calls on it that could do more things or added new features to the phone network. It totally reinvented the building blocks of what communication was over those networks. The, the, phone, the phone network became an on-ramp for a completely new type of communication. That is what Bitcoin is, a completely new type of um, establishing value, scarcity, and defining ownership that is completely distributed, owned by the commons, and globally decentralized, just like TCPIP. Nobody was the gatekeeper to connecting and sharing information on the internet. The internet became owned by the commons. Anyone could tether to it, essentially, could connect to it, and then they were freely connected to the whole world. That was a paradigm shift like no other in the history of our society. Um, like the, the internet is an incredible invention. It is literally the modern wonder of the world. There is nothing as large, complex, and cooperatively and collectively maintained that can even come close to comparing to the internet. It's the most fascinating thing to, to not be just dumbfounded by this thing that we have created. The only way that you can just, you have to just not look at it, to not look or think about it at all. That's the only way to not be dumbfounded by how unbelievably huge and fascinating and complex the entirety of the internet is. Did you know that most of the internet is not indexed? The vast majority of devices, um, uh, uh, servers, like stuff, connected data that is transferred is in what's referred to as the deep web, which sounds like it's all dark and nefarious, but no, it's just, it's just all the things that are connected or have some use of the internet that aren't directly indexed as part of the web. Like That is actually a minority of the internet. The internet is far bigger than just Google and Facebook. And in that same way, Bitcoin is going to be a completely different idea. It is, it is an operating system in the sense that it is a new set of building blocks for defining value in a digital space, to create a digital scarcity that is owned by the commons, that, is, that no one owns, that no central party controls, that is freely that is freely able to connect to, that is freely and cheaply able to validate the integrity of, and without the reliance on anyone else. Asking how many payments that thing can do a second, per second, is is literally like ask is no different. I, I is no different than asking how many phone calls the internet can make. It's a fundamentally different thing that you were trying to box into an old bias and failing to understand what the value actually is there. Um, and uh, like Paul Krugman's uh, comment about the fax machine, um, like, like saying, asking how many payments you can make at the base layer, and, and then also comparing those payments to like Visa, to like how many, how many debit cards, uh, swipes and stuff that people make to think that like that's how we're going to make best use of this unbelievable assurance system 
it's like asking i use this actually in um uh the i don't remember how, what the number was but it's the misunderstand common misunderstandings of the block size debate uh is that it's like asking um how many faxes like trying to judge the use of email by measuring it against how many faxes are sent in the 80s. It's like, oh, well, that's how many emails people will probably send. Payments are going to transform. And that's another thing. That's another thing that um, he has a section. He has a, pay, a quote on. Where is it? Uh, Bitcoin is where the internet was in the late 80s, still largely misunderstood. People are still arguing about speed of payments. They do not realize that payments as we know them today will completely transform. The same way we are no longer talking about the quality of the phone call and the number of phone calls that this internet thing will support. That we're, we're changing the very idea of what it means to exchange money, to exchange value in the digital space. To think that we're going to uh, apply this to... And to completely misunderstand how big this scaling problem is, um, that block size in any way whatsoever even begins to tackle the actual problem. Um, I use the analogy that it is not, like increasing the block size is not like putting an extra drop in the bucket of the scaling problem. It is putting an extra drop in the ocean of the scaling problem. There is only means of scaling this thing that is worth spending any time on whatsoever is exponential. It is exponential scaling or it is nothing. That is why the layered approach is the best, this is the best and only answer that we have for this whole thing. At least when it comes to payments and the idea of scaling out, of tethering um, economic activity to the near impossible assurances that Bitcoin actually provides. And everybody who thinks that that's just more payments is going to completely, going to completely miss the boat. Completely miss the boat. It's so sad. I get, I, I literally almost get depressed when someone argues with me that's like, oh, it doesn't make it, but it doesn't have as many payments as BSV or blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, and I say it's not a payments network. And, and of course that doesn't, that doesn't satisfy anybody to just hear that, oh, it's not a payments network. And they're like, oh, okay, well, that's great. Um, no, they, they double down and they're like, oh, great. So yeah, you're going to have a money when nobody in the world can use it. And it's just like, like they're, they're sitting on the greatest opportunity in the history of the modern world. Like, I, I don't think there is any opportunity as big as this that I will probably see in my lifetime. Granted, there's going to be a vast amount of change, but it is, I think a lot of it is really going to be because of Bitcoin at its foundation. And to miss that, because you're like, you're arguing about how many payments it does at the base layer. Uh, I, I, wish, I wish there was a 20-second way to get it across to people that that's not what this is about. That is one branch on the vast tree that is defining and securing value in the digital realm. Payments is one part of this thing. And it's not even really the hard part. Like, we don't need proof of work for all of the payments. We need proof of work for the decentralized consensus and the integrity of the ledger. 
Okay, I'm repeating myself a little bit. Um, so, uh, so this kind of gets into, we move from here into the dumb versus the smart network idea. And this is something we've covered. I have no idea. I can't think of an episode. I know I've talked about it in a couple of different locations. Maybe, maybe the internet, maybe the guys take episode. I think probably where I went through the history of TCP IP. Um, I think that's, that's probably the one I'll link to. Um, just cause it's got, a a deep dive into the whole history of the internet and the idea. I'm pretty certain I go into the idea of dumb versus smart networks, but the TCP IP is a profoundly dumb network. It is about, and Andreas Antonopoulos has a really good talk on this somewhere too. I'll see if I can't find it and I'll drop it in the show notes, but talking about the difference between one that is that the network itself just routes packets. It doesn't care what's in those packets. It doesn't do special things for you know a million different types of information within that packet it just identifies devices and finds routes like it, it does one job and it doesn't care what those packets are and that is very much is a great analogy to what bitcoin does we don't need bitcoin to um, do a million different things in fact the nature of Bitcoin versus something like TCP/IP, because it's just communication, in integrity to like where that information comes from or who that information is coming from, isn't really part of a concern with the internet in itself and with the actual communication layer. That's an authentication layer. That's a that's a that's a different part of the system. But Bitcoin, that integrity, that that trust in what is real information and what is not is a requirement of the foundation of that system. Um, it's not the same. It's not the same because the internet itself is not communicating value, but Bitcoin is, which means that the integrity of the fact that that is in fact one of those things that's valuable versus one of those things that is not valuable because it's a digital environment an artificial one, that integrity is everything. Without that integrity, it's nothing. It's just like all the other data we send to each other day in and day out, every second of every day on the internet. It is flooded with data. What is special about Bitcoin is that it is very explicit data under very explicit rules. And in that, it's not important for the, the network itself to be smart or have an enormous amount of features. What you need and what it provides is a strong simple foundation for proving value and ownership. And when you have that, you can then extend it to the complexity, just like the, the examples of DNA, just like the examples of the tree. We can then branch off of that to accomplish all these other tasks, all these other features. And the Lightning Network is a great example. Maybe we should just go ahead, and I've already gone really far into this, so let's, let's just go ahead and get into the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network can do all of those stupid ICO and altcoin things. There's a RGB protocol, which is not super interesting in my opinion, because again, like I said about ICOs, if there's no fiduciary duty, if someone is just managing how many points there are in the system and they have control over this contract, it's not what, what do you, what did you get out of that? You got a, you got a digital point on somebody else's ledger um, and again, we do that all the time. And if they're not promising to pay $1 for each of those points, then you don't even have PayPal. 
you've just got you've just got a digital point that someone else can print infinitely at zero cost whatsoever or they just invented a billion of them out of thin air and you paid money for it <laughs> that's a terrible deal and you're promised nothing in return nothing you're not promised part of a company you're not promised um some gold somewhere you're not you're not given any sort of integrity that they're not going to change the rules like nothing you just got points so you can do all of that dumb shit on lightning if you want to um but i wouldn't recommend it i don't i don't really see the point in it um if you want a centralized token just accept one from a centralized service get a target gift card get you know buy apple stock those are great centralized tokens um, and you can issue them on a blockchain if you want. I don't know why you would, because you've still just got them running the blockchain. Like, if Apple screws up, like, I want them to be able to easily change the ledger um, so that the stock is under is representative of their system. Just like I said with Target, like, if Target goes away, Target gift cards aren't worth anything. So it's important that Target has control over it, because it's it's all centralized with them anyway. Um, so if they just make it harder for them to edit their own system or uh, that other people run a copy of it for no reason and now everybody has to update at the same time, like it just makes it a pain in the ass for Target to update things or change the policy or the rewards schedule or whatever it is that, you know, with your Starbucks points or your Target points, whatever, you know, whatever thing they have. Why would they, why would they want to make that harder for them to control? What's the benefit that they get out of that? I don't know. It just seems it just seems silly to me to think that. Um, I, mean, I mean, maybe somebody will do that, but I just don't quite see why the business would value that or why, why that would be good for them. But again, you can do this on Lightning if you want. Um, so you know, more power to you. Um, but the Lightning is for anybody who doesn't know basic overview. Um, well, he really does a good job. If you haven't listened to uh, all the Lightning stuff, is in part two of the Bitcoin Times of this piece that we're going through. Um, so, um, if you haven't listened to it, I recommend he does a pretty good job of just summing the whole thing up, but, uh, basically that you create routes with value, with, with value that you own within this, within the system. So Bitcoin defines the ownership. Think of Bitcoin as the court. Um, and we're not talking about a centralized court. We're talking about the fact that we have a decentralized monetary court that we can always fall back to with the highest assurances that can protect billions or trillions of dollars if we need it to whenever something goes wrong. So uh, the analogy I use is that um, like just like the a political court system, like a judicial system in a, a country or whatever, you don't go to the judge every time you want. You don't have a judge or take in, go to the actual courtroom to get a receipt signed every time you buy coffee. Like, that's ridiculous. That's a level of assurance and security in a coffee purchase that is not warranted whatsoever. It's not that important. I get my coffee, I throw my receipt away. I don't need anybody else to keep a record of it and hash it into a global chain. None of that is that important. I just want my coffee and I want to get out of there. But if something goes wrong, if I make a purchase and uh, someone tries to screw me out of that, I want a a court particularly with the higher value the higher the value that i have like the the more it's regarding um my my savings my life savings the the value that backs my house or that contract or something then i want an incredibly 
decentralized, uncorruptible court because only through that do I get the highest assurances and that I will go to the judge for and I will get signed by multiple parties and double-checked and escrowed and all of that good stuff. That is the unbelievable value that Bitcoin provides and it does that extra judiciously. So it does it outside of the realm of the political sphere. And that's what makes it so powerful. It's a court. It is a court of the commons and it is a court of an independent money with no third party, no financial institution that can manipulate that, no government that can manipulate that, and a perfectly predictable and static monetary policy, something that we have never had and was deemed impossible just 11 years ago when it comes to the digital world. Lightning Network is an extension of that. It is using Bitcoin payments, it is using a, a Bitcoin transaction on the base layer to set up liquidity for a financial network. And that's one thing that uh, I had one of those unpopular opinion things uh, on Twitter and uh, I posted once that base layer Bitcoin transactions will almost entirely move away from single single party ownership exchange to another single party ownership that that will be an incredibly rare almost non-existent thing because the transactions themselves will be used to create monetary networks on top that where every transaction ends up consolidating and aggregating thousands tens of thousands maybe even millions of payments and that's what the potential of the lightning network is now Right now, Lightning Network is in beta, and everybody you're going to hear from everybody, oh, it's too slow, it doesn't always work, it's sometimes payments fail, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. sometimes liquidity isn't there, um, and there, there are challenges with the Lightning Network. But understand, there was a, there was a study that was really funny because um, a lot of, uh, I guess you could say big blockers, altcoiners, whatever, um, were posting and basically jumping around in glee about the fact that Lightning Network... Uh, only 90% of payments um, would go through that like one out of every 10 would fail, which is a you know terrible from a user experience side of things. But this is when we're talking about so many, we're not, we're not falling back on any of the other technologies. So think about what that means that 90% of the payments actually succeed. But remember that we've got tools like submarine swaps and atomic swaps and splices and all of these other things that if we have the exact same client, the exact same wallet, will fall back to those things in the 10% of cases in which Lightning does not work fully. Because again, Lightning is a network. Again, we are talking about uh, a very long maturation process. We have to build the foundations of this network over time. And that includes figuring out, you know, making incremental increases in being able to lock up more money more securely into a single channel, a single route within this network to be able to have more secure backups so that things like hardware failures do not cause us enormous problems, to figure out incremental improvements in the management of those channels and the liquidity to be able to fall back, again, to things like atomic swaps, where for the one out of 10 times that the payment doesn't work, well, then you create an on-chain payment um, that fills that gap. So the user doesn't even know that it's only one in 10. And understand, you have got, you've immediately got 
even in the current state, without amps, which allow you to pay across multiple channels at one time, which is one of the limitations of the Lightning Network and its current implementation, without trampoline payments that allow you to uh, outsource your finding of a route to somebody in a better position within the network, uh, without um, channel factories that allow you to open and close channels offline to create to create routes that are within groups of routes. Uh, that's that's probably not going to make any sense to a lot of people, but there are so many other technologies coming to Lightning. We are literally talking about we're transacting Bitcoin. If we if one out of every ten of those Lightning payments fail and it just falls back to the alternative to sending an on-chain transaction or an atomic swap. Well, then we've got a 10x scaling immediately. Immediately. We went from 1.5 to 2 megabyte blocks to 15 to 20 megabyte blocks, equivalent when it comes to payments and transactions. And we did that without compromising the validation layer, the integrity of the money itself at all. And now all it takes, we implement AMPs and get another 5% out of that. We implement... Um, more efficient atomic swaps. We implement uh, aggregation across Lightning for the closing and opening of channels, for uh, atomic swaps in a group, um, to coin join in and out of a Lightning channel, to open up channel factories uh, among large businesses that do enormous amounts of um, uh, liquidity between each other for them to for exchanges to offload traffic onto side chains in which they then build a lightning network on top of that. The number of things that can get another one percent, another half a percent. When we get to something like ninety nine percent of payments succeeding, which there's a whole list of things that will make this thing simpler, make it more robust, build out the possibility for different types of liquidity. There's so much potential here. It's unbelievable. And if you get to 99%, well, then you've got 150 megabyte blocks equivalent. You've got 200 megabyte blocks equivalent. The, we're talking about exponential scaling. Incremental improvements in this thing will give us an unbelievable amount of payment and transaction capacity. And that's just the Lightning Network. It's one of multiple options for layered solutions to the payments and features and applications problem. There will be an applications layer on top of this. That is what Lightning represents. The people who think 90% success rate in a payment right now is a failure of the Lightning network, when you can put an atomic swap as the fail-safe for one out of every 10 transactions, and no one would ever even know, you could just have the client manage this completely in the background, that is not an argument against Lightning. That is argue, that's, an, that's proof that, in, that Lightning is already a 10 to 20x improvement in transaction and payments capacity. And that's done in an entirely non-custodial way. You are setting up a route into the Lightning network, but the other parties that you are connected to do not have control over your coins. You are the final arbiter. You are the final person who has the exact keys which define exactly how much money you have within that contract, and you can always take it to the court of Bitcoin to prove it if anything ever goes wrong. And that is the first of the puzzle pieces that will make, that will make us able to tether trillions of dollars of value to this network, to this complete 
reinvention of what value is and how it is defined in the digital world. I think you have to work really hard to be stubbornly against lightning in order to think that something that is missing, that still does not have some of the core technologies that's going to make it powerful, like amps, um, like a, a robust atomic swap, um, offerings uh, to uh, aggregation of payments, uh, L2 and Schnorr signatures, these these huge updates that are coming to Lightning and that is going to incredibly simplify and help secure the process. Like, like for instance, even the, even the, just a handful of failures that have happened, like the story recently about the guy who had money locked up in, a lot of money locked up in channels and uh, had a hard drive failure or device failure and did not have the most recent keys, well, then they lost that money. Well, L2 and a improvement that's coming to Lightning, a, a variant on the implementation of it, will completely solve that problem because no longer will the old states be invalidated um, through a punishment clause. They will be invalidated by the newer state. So if I accidentally publish the second-to-last state, um, rather than punishing me by uh, removing, by stealing all of my coins, by taking all of my coins as punishment, it will simply overwrite the old state um, with the one that is actually correct um, because those failures are a result of the network punishing fraud. If, you, if I don't have the final state of our transactions in this network, well, then it's considered fraud. I'm trying to revoke a transaction. So even though that's a terrible thing for someone who has lost their keys or has had hard drive failure, it is a security measure. It is the explicit security contract in Lightning that made them lose the money. So it's not a demonstration of the Lightning Network not working. It's a demonstration of how powerfully the incentives in Lightning are to force honesty on all of the parties. It is basically proving that this is a non-custodial network because uh, one person, even though it was by accident, tried to cheat the contract, and the contract relieved them of all of their money. <laughs> all right, and the last section that he goes in here into here is the societal stack. Um, and this is another idea that I love. I think probably the best piece to do a little deep dive on this one is Hasu's, um, one of my favorites, um, Hasu's uh, Bitcoin and the Promise of Independent Property Rights. I think I think that's what it's called. Um, something about independent property rights, uh, and uh, basically talking about how like property rights and ownership are enforced in the physical world in, in in our normal societal architecture through a a government and then judicial system. And this is a totally separate stack. Now he doesn't actually go into Alex. Um, uh, Alexander's version of this where really he kind of lays out the real foundation of it that com communication is the foundation and the money is the kind of the organization it's the cooperation layer how do we how do we have a reliable high integrity way to define value and then exchange it with each other because the value the the, the time the labor our lives, what we do with the limited time that we are here is the most important and most valuable thing that we have. That is what money represents. It allows me to trade six hours of my time for, you know, whatever the, the value of the product or 
uh, production service, whatever it is that I did in that time that I can produce to save, to, to make the lives of other people better. It is only because of that independent medium that we can trust that instead of each other in order to cooperate at a scale that's, that makes Dunbar's number a thing of the past. Dunbar, Dunbar's number, by the way, I don't think he explained it um, in this piece. He didn't go into it. But Dunbar's number is a theoretical number, um, which actually has been roughly proven in practice to be you know, accurate. Um, somewhere around 150 people is essentially the amount of relationships and associations that any one human can hold at one time in a network of people. Because um, just like he talks about in one of the earlier sections about how the, um, the quadratic increase of the number of connections within a network, well, when you're talking about relationships between people, um, that, that does the exact same thing is because, you know, with uh, one person, well, then we've got uh, essentially, we've got no relationships with two people. We've got two relationships, uh, basically my impression of that person and then how they think of me that I have to deal with. That's, I have to consolidate between those two different perceptions. Then with three, we've got six because not only do I have to deal with me and the other person and the me and person two and vice versa, but I have to deal with who person one thinks of person two and person two thinks of person one. So this continues to increase in this exponential way until you reach 150 people and then everything starts breaking down because at 200, at 300 people, that, that's when culture cannot be entirely consistent. Beliefs can no longer be consistent. I can't know. I'm going to bump into somebody who I don't really know anything about. I don't know uh, the people around me, uh, the people that I trust, how much they trust that other person. We can't scale past that 150 unless we have an independent thing to anchor our trust to. That is what money allows so that we can scale past the size of a small tribe or a small village without basically going to war with each other. The fact that the United States is one cohesive economy that 300 million, 350 million people, whatever it is, can actually cooperate and work towards their own goals together is unbelievable. It is only because of money. It is that, that is the source of society, is that we can actually exchange things without having to trust or know. I don't know who the person is that I buy coffee from all the time. I don't know any of the people who work in the grocery store that I go to, but I don't have to trust them. I don't have to come back to them later to get the value out of um, uh, something that they traded with me or vice versa. Instead, we both use the same independent medium so that the value is exchanged immediately. It's, no, it's not owed because I've got a representative unit of that value that I can exchange with anyone else in, the, in society. So I don't need to be, uh, uh, take, take the risk of anyone else's liability. We exchange value immediately even though they might not have or I might not have uh, another good or service to barter with. Instead, we have this unbelievably efficient, independent element, this, this unit, 
that we can both independently trust and verify the integrity of, and so we can anchor our exchange to it instead. And that is what makes society possible. Without that, there is no division of labor. Without that, we resort to barter. Barter is our only option. Or we have debts and liabilities we owe each other, which, again, can only scale scale up to Dunbar's number. I can't trade with somebody that I don't even know where they live. I can't, I can't be like, I can't trade on the internet with somebody in China if I have no way to get back up with them later to hold them accountable for what I gave them. Money is the bridge. And because of that, society is not possible without money. And if you have a corrupt, unsound money at the base, the extension, the, the consequences, the results of that corruption, of that uh, lack of integrity, is felt all the way to the ends. Just, just like a poison in the roots of a tree, there is no leaf on that tree that is secure if the roots are poisoned. Um, it changes everything about the tree. It's the entire, the health of every branch is totally reliant on that. And money and communication are the roots of society. And you cannot have a strong, sustainable, healthy society without a robust, high-integrity, high-assurance money. And that is what Bitcoin does. And because of it, it will have the greatest effect on our society as any technology we have ever had before. And that's what makes this one of the most important innovations in the history of the world. That's what it makes it a discovery, a zero to one moment that we figured this thing out. And it doesn't make any sense to just keep replicating this because it is in the fact that we have this one unifying standard to tether to that is exactly what makes it a valuable thing and increase efficiency across the economy. Uh, and that's why it's, it's the greatest opportunity that we've ever seen. That's why I can't, I've been able to, unable to walk away from it because, you know, like I said, with Svon Holm, and uh, he went into in his book Sovereignty Through Mathematics, um, that you can't overstate its importance. Um, just like you can't overstate the importance of healthy roots in, in a tree or really healthy roots in a forest of trees. Uh, if without, without healthy roots, you've got nothing. You've got no forest whatsoever, um, and, and that's what this is. It is the roots of society, and uh, money is not the. Uh, we'll, we'll end on actually Alexander's quote: uh, "Money is not the root of all evil. Money is the root of all complex cooperation." That is a really good quote, and I like that one. I'm going to be using that one in the future. All right, so I went hella through a bunch of stuff today. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, I really loved this piece, and I felt like, even if I was a little ranty, uh, I felt like this really deserved a thorough walking through. Um, so thanks for sticking with me, guys. And uh, I will be back tomorrow, probably with another read. Um, got a lot of stuff lined up, and I've been doing a lot of research more recently on the Lightning Network, and I've got some really exciting stuff to talk about in the future already got uh, I've got like three or four interviews um, in the works that I'm trying to schedule and talking to a couple of people about and those are going to be really fun really exciting so much cool stuff to cover so much amazing development happening all over the place can't wait to break into it so don't forget to subscribe 
to the show. This is the Crypto Economy. I am Guy Swan. If you want to support the show, you can always become a patron and join us in the Telegram group chat with the rest of the Crypto Economy crew. Uh, we got a fun, fun gang over there, and uh, they always get the inside scoop on what's going on. And of course, it also means that you're helping to turn all of the best content in Bitcoin and economics and the cryptographic economy uh, into the audio versions that they deserve. Uh, so I read them so that you don't have to. Um, and if you're getting value out of that sh out of this show, that's a huge, huge thing to even just a dollar a month uh, really does go a long way. And it also proves to me that you really enjoy this show. Um, so it means a lot. And thank you. Thank you to everybody who has done that. Um, but of course, if that's a little bit tall of an order, if, uh, if you can't do that, well, one thing you can do absolutely is share this out with everybody, you know, in the Bitcoin and crypto economy space, um, so that they too can get all of this read to them because ain't nobody got time to read all this shit, but it's good stuff and you don't want to miss it. That's why the crypto economy is here. That is why Guy Swan is here. And until next time. Take it easy, guys.